I flew out to Virginia to go convince the person across the table, you know, the, you know the drill, enterprise sales. And the person looked at me and said, we were never going to do a deal with you until you showed up. And he said, it was clear to us that they did not know what it meant to partner with an organization like ours. There's just a credibility gap that you have to bridge to say, okay, you're taking a bet on me, and I recognize you're taking a bet on me. Enterprise offers is about trust at the end of the day, and there's no faking that. You have to look someone in the eye and say, we will be here for you when the lights go out. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Blacharzik from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. This episode was recorded live at our recent GGV Evolving Enterprise Conference, where we had 100 enterprise founders in attendance. Dave McJanet, CEO of HashiCorp, was our keynote fireside chat. Hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm going to introduce Dave McJanet. Dave is the CEO of HashiCorp, one of our GGV portfolio companies. Uh, he's been CEO now for just about three years. Uh, some quick facts when Dave joined, and he may fact check me on this. My recollection is we had about somewhere between 30 and 30-ish people at the company. Uh, fast forward to today, and the company's zooming past 400 three years later, so that's pretty phenomenal. Even more interesting, you, you saw the multiple that Tiffany talked about in market cap for software companies going up 5x over the last five years. Let's try this one on for size. I'm pretty sure that the quarter Dave joined versus last quarter in terms of top line was 50x, three years. Pretty good job, Dave. Like, that's not bad. That will give you a golf clap for that one. 50x. So Dave, CEO, and is doing an amazing job. And we're going to dig into the HashiCorp growth story in just a second. Prior to joining HashiCorp, Dave ran marketing at organizations like GitHub, Hortonworks, and earlier in his career, spent time at VMware, Microsoft, Web Methods. He's not, uh, not his first rodeo and knows the software space quite well. So without further ado, let's welcome Dave to join me. Sure. <laughs> so we can hire people. <laughs> well, 50x growth, yeah. not bad either. So first question I wanted to ask, because a lot of the folks in the room are founders. You're CEO, but you're not the founder of HashiCorp. You joined and the company was 30-ish people or so, which isn't like plan A for most startups these days. So tell us about the process for you joining HashiCorp and what was it like to join as a CEO and whether or not you thought that was, obviously you think it's a good idea now, but in hindsight, uh, what were some of the challenges around that move? As Glenn highlighted, I, I'd done a couple of turns in the marketing seat of companies that had gone through big growth phases. And uh, so I was introduced to Mitchell and Armand about four years ago, just as a sounding board for them to think about yeah, how do you build open source infrastructure businesses. I'd done a couple of open source uh, companies that became public companies. And I was like, I'm good, you know, <laughs> startups are hard. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to stay where I am. And um, as they got a bit further into it, I, you know, I think the way you assess, we generally assess market opportunities is, uh, you know, team, product, market. And uh, it's pretty clear these are pretty exceptional people <laughs> in every respect. Uh, it's also pretty clear that the products that they'd built were super popular, but I couldn't really describe the market they were in. Uh, and I think that was probably, I was probably not alone there. And um, 
And so they, they eventually started asking me about more go-to-market stuff, and eventually they said, hey, would you be interested in joining us to run the go-to-market side? And I was like, sorry if they're hard, uh, I'm, I'm good. And I actually shared with them a view which was, I think you can't really separate go-to-market from the company. I think having seen multiple companies now become big successful entities, you need to establish a thesis that is a statement of strategic intent, and then you wrap a company behind it, is sort of how I think about the world. And so once you're clear on that, the product plan, the go-to-market plan, the partner plan just sort of fall out of it. And so I sort of said, you know, I, I think this is the way structurally it works, but, you know, so I wish you guys luck. And then Armand actually came back and said, well, would you consider being CEO? And I said, no way. <laughs> I mean, I, I think taking the CEO job is risky, personally, right? Uh, you don't you generally get a second shot to be a CEO if you screw up the first one. So I think keep that in mind for people that you're asked to be CEO. Uh, this is a big deal for them. It's a big deal for you, I get that. But I was struck by kind of the self-awareness that they had to say, you know, I, we think we need to partner with somebody to have this company realize our vision, and if you're interested in doing that, we'll happily give you the CEO seat to do so if you believe that's what it takes. So it took me a couple of turns to figure that out. And, and actually, what actually happened, Glenn probably won't tell the story, I was sort of like, I don't really want to do this, and Glenn bought me a beer and said, if you do this, I'll put in $15 million behind you, or whatever the number is, to de-risk it for you. So I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. And it worked. So. Um, yeah, I can, I can vouch for the fact that uh, it was about a six-month uh, <laughs> tug-of-war to get Dave to say yes, but we're very glad you did. One thing you told me, like, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of uh, the adage from Harry Potter, which was like, the wizard doesn't choose the wand, the wand chooses the wizard, <laughs> okay? And Dave said something to me that I thought was quite profound. He said, you know, when a company's looking for a CEO and you're looking to be a CEO, you actually have got to figure out, there's probably one person who's right for the job. Am I that person? And so eventually you figured out you were that person, but was there any key moment where like, the, switch, yeah. the switch flipped for you? <laughs> I was given some really good advice that said, that was exactly that, is you have to decide, are you the best person in the world to do this job? And is this the best company for you to do this job in? And both of those things really matter. Like I said, if you screw it up, you don't get another shot. You know, I'd come out of the infrastructure market, open source, I sort of understand how that game is played and was confident we could figure it out. So I felt like I was a good fit for the company, and I think when you look at the construction of Armin and Mitchell, frankly, was mostly it, the, just sort of their self-awareness to say, hey, we recognize we have a superpower around building products, we recognize building a company is more than that, and if it takes giving up the seat to get you to do that, then I'm good with that. <laughs> and then my wife actually said, if you can't build something valuable with these guys, you're an idiot. <laughs> I think it's what she said. So. And Dave's not an idiot, uh, we're happy to say. <laughs> She's so, smarter than me. So I want to pick up on that point. Like, obviously, HashiCorp's founders, Mitchell Hashimoto and, and Armand Dadgar, are like 110% involved day to day. I talked to Armand yesterday, who was in New York, meeting with customers. Mitchell is in DC, I think, right now, doing yep. something with the federal government. I mean, they're fully engaged. They're serving as co-CTO. So how do you guys split the world? There's three of you. You all obviously have an incredible vantage point and a lot to add to this company. How do you split things up? I felt pretty strongly about everything needs to be aligned around a common mission. Otherwise, this is not likely to be successful. And so they agreed, actually. They, they moved into co-CTO roles, and everybody else reports to me which is not how a lot of companies uh, would do it. And obviously, for them to give up the product reins is a big deal. But that just sort of happened to be how we did it. Now, in truth, when you set out to build an enterprise software company, you better have a really long time horizon because you're taking people's money to do really serious stuff. And when you take people's money, you've got to settle in and say, this is going to take a while for us to build a big, valuable company. And I think that's how we think about it is, this is a long-term relationship based on trust. And so, in truth, 
we do a lot of decision-making together, and we will disagree about a lot of things, but we have absolute clarity around the mission. And, and as long as we are clear about that, you know, it doesn't really matter what seat people okay, are in. So when, when you guys have disagreements, yep. which clearly don't make it to the board, because I haven't seen any of those, <laughs> how do you deal with disagreements? Yeah. How, do you, how do you manage those? Yeah, I think certain things really matter in terms of the, the strategic position that we take in the market, the people that we hire. But I generally think that when faced with the same data, most people make the same decision. So I, I think a lot of startups is about elevating into the information flow so that you can get the information. And then if you understand how the markets fit together, it's not very complicated to make the right decisions, typically. Not to oversimplify it, but that's, that's sort of the essence of it. So we will disagree about some stuff, but generally we're in the same information flows, so there's very little we really disagree with. If push comes to shove and they feel very, very strongly about something, like, let's make no mistake, this is their company. So I'm not going to fight them on something if they feel super strongly, uh, unless it's about the mission and uh, the orientation around it. Okay. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about the business model. You've mentioned yep. it's open source, and you, you've got a lot of personal experience with open source. And your model, some people call open core or commercial open source. Talk to us about how the model works. It's a yep. mystery to most people. Well, I think Mitchell, he, he used, he, on your podcast, he said it best. I just happened to listen to it. He said, you know, the... The paradox of open source is you can build these giant communities, but what you've done is you've built giant communities of people with a predilection not to pay you anything. <laughs> so, so your business model better not be about monetizing those people because the idea that if I can just get a million people using it and I monetize 1%, I can make money, um, just runs into that reality. So I, I think the open source business model has really changed over the last eight or 10 years. I think GitHub has been a big part of that. We can now drop a project onto GitHub, put an open source license on it, aggregate thousands of people around it. And that's opened up different business opportunities. So our particular model is, yeah, you would call it open core, which is we focus on the needs of the users and we build products for the needs of the users. You can use Terraform to provision 100,000 servers on Amazon and, and we're not gonna stop you. But our view is that the enterprise is where the money's gonna be, so let's build a version of Terraform that is specifically to the needs of the enterprise. And their problems are different. They're not, how do I provision infrastructure? They're out, they're up, their problems are just different. So once you establish the thesis that, hey, 80% of the category spend in any market spent by the global 2000, why am I going to bother with anybody else? That's our thesis. Um, once you do that, then you go, well, the product packaging sort of falls out of that. Okay, what are the problems of the Global 2000? So we drive usage of our products, but our commercial, very open source, and we get tremendous leverage from the open source development model, but the actual monetization is about the needs of the enterprise. So are there some key indicators or metrics that you use to kind of monitor the health of the business then on the open source side that, yep. that help inform what's gonna happen on the commercial side? Yeah, so we tend to take a balanced scorecard view of the world. I think revenue is a trailing indicator. There's no surprise that we've been able to generate a lot of revenue because these products are hugely used. So if you get the packaging right, you'll, you'll generate a lot of revenue. We tend to break it down into, there are only three things we're trying to do. If you think about our positioning in the market, which is an enabler of this cloud model, and more specifically, an enabler of the multi-cloud model, our number one priority is drive usage by the end users. So every, every day I refresh our download charts to, to tell me what's happening. Number two, it's help the cloud providers bring more workloads under management using our products. And that's priority one and two. And establish relationships with the Global 2000 is actually priority three. Uh, so we, we, we measure each of those things independently. The health of the business is dictated by 
people that love using our products. And I think it's one of the really disruptive aspects of enterprise software today is we're going direct to practitioner. And if we lose sight of that, we're done. If you sort of flip and say, I'm going to focus on just monetizing the enterprise, you will have a short-lived business. Yeah, you can generate 100 million in revenue, but you're not going to generate 200. So you think about the long burn of maximizing usage by the end user, instrumenting usage on the clouds, and then lastly about driving enterprise partnerships. How about like just time and, and resource allocation? Oh, yeah. Just because, like you said, if you lose sight of the open source community, it, it can become not even a neutral, it can become a negative. Yeah. And so how do you think about making sure you feed that while also feeding the commercial side of your business? Yeah. Um, we don't actually distinguish. So our product teams are, uh, they carry both mandates. So we, say for example, the team that works on, on Vault, they do the open source stuff and the, and the commercial stuff. It's one team. It's not two teams. And then we have a product management function that uh, actually didn't exist when I got there. That's one of the things that, that was different, was we instituted a professional product management function uh, rather than just listening to what was happening in the open source community. And over time, we just sort of slowly uh, created lines of demarcation between the two. So. You know, 80% of what we do is open source. Uh, we are massively innovating in the open source community for the end user because these markets are evolving. And so you know, probably 80% of what we do is open source development for the community. We just know that if we do that, we'll be able to establish partnerships with the enterprises. So if you looked at the typical day of, of one of the founders, how much time are they spending kind of with the open source community uh, versus thinking more about you know, commercial customers and that, that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, I think at this point, actually there's a really interesting organizational construct that emerges uh, when companies like this hit scale. We have six different projects, all of which are super popular, and at this point we now have leads for each of those projects that are not the founders anymore, so they're actually not involved at all, is the truth. They are sort of spiritually giving guidance to them, but, but we've established feedback loops specifically within those communities. So. Actually, Armand's spending all his time. <laughs> all of his time is in sales. I mean, I just follow what he's doing on Twitter. I see where he is. That's the only reason I know where he is. Uh, and he's got crowds of people from... He's doing a Gartner CIO summit. He's got 13 CIOs you know, <laughs> peering uh, eagerly at what he's talking about. So he's just talking commercial stuff. I think they're now thinking more about the two-year, three-year view of how we, uh, how we continue to build the, the, the company as opposed to the open source feedback loops. Okay. Going back to the product side of this equation, you talked about 80% is open source. How do you determine what's going to be part of the open source roadmap yeah. and what you're going to keep for, for commercial? And um, you know, any, any lessons you can impart on open source companies and even, even companies that are, that are thinking about, uh, that are closed source, but trying to think about what, what to prioritize? Yeah. So for us, it starts with who is our target? Our target market is the enterprise, and then what are the problems they have? And then we establish a very simple rubric which applies to all of our products, which is, is you increase in organizational complexity in the use of any, any technology, you just have different problems. So like, when you go from an individual using something, then you go to a team, and then you go to an organization, you, you sort of introduce different problems. So our rubric then is, everything the individual needs is available in open source, there's no constraint. Mm -hmm. The team problem is one of collaboration. It's like going from Git to GitHub. And I actually think GitHub got the packaging right uh, at the end of the day. So GitHub's actually an app that orchestrates the team with a prescriptive workflow around how people collaborate on, on Git. Terraform Enterprise is an app that orchestrates the provisioning experience for people. So there's actually no conflict between what's an open source and what's not. It's actually a different product. And then we have a pro skew and a premium skew. And the premium skew is 
In addition to collaboration, I know those people have problems of policy and governance, which is basically governance, who did what, audit trails, that sort of stuff. Policy, who can do what. Mm -hmm. Hey, no one can provision after five o'clock on a Friday. How about that? <laughs> um, I was like, those are enterprise problems. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the company's focus on enterprise. Yep. Uh, most people in this room, we have a, a, a healthy number of companies that are at seed and, and A stage and then you know, also about, about half the companies are B and beyond, but what's true for most of the companies in this room is they start, tend to start with smaller companies as potential customers and move up the food chain. Yeah. You know, when you got to HashiCorp already, the pipeline was, was pretty much focused on very large companies, and as you talked about, that's your focus today. Yeah. Is there something natural about your business and why you chose to focus there? Yeah. You know, really curious about what you think you've needed to do to be successful selling to enterprise, yeah. even as a young company. Yeah, I think uh, everybody has this problem of how do you adopt cloud, uh, but it turns out the enterprise is the one that has the multi-cloud problem, because just, they just have heterogeneity. So, so people like Stripe and Slack and people like that, they, they're, they're cloud-native companies, and so they, they could just use the cloud-native products. Alan's right there, so maybe we can work yeah. on them later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> thank you. So, but, but, the, but the problem of the enterprise, if you think about it, is, hey, I have to build a new application that gets data from a mainframe. And so the problem is one of actually heterogeneity, and that is the problem that HashiCorp products solve. So it sort of is a logical thing. And number two, those enterprises, they don't have the skills that the people around here do, so they tend to be the ones that reach out to you. So we were getting a lot of inbound from people saying, we don't know how to do this, can you come and consult for us? So I think that decision to be enterprise was, was sort of reinforced by that, that we were getting market pull from it. Okay. So I just think it, it fit really well enterprise-wise. Now, the hard part is like, how do you have this open source stuff be able to project itself as enterprise grade. <laughs> and I think that was, a, that was a hard transition. How do you convince General Electric that that cool thing they've been using now is in the runtime path of all their applications? Uh, and that is really hard. So do you fake it till you make you it? How do, it. How, do you, how do you make that happen? <laughs> I kind of go back to the, the same thing around the relationship with the founders, which is enterprise software is, just, is about trust at the end of the day, and there's no faking that. You have to look someone in the eye and say, we will be here for you when the, when the, when the lights go out. And one of the, kind of the cool things that happened is that, that um, you, you sort of have to project a slightly different image if you want to be that. You, you, kind of, you are what you appear to be sometimes. And uh, so we had to hire a bunch of enterprise salespeople to make, make it clear that we knew what it meant. And, and one of the meetings we had was the first million dollar deal we did maybe three years ago, uh, something, yeah, about, about two and a half years ago. Uh, I flew out to Virginia to go convince the person across the table, you know, the, you know the drill enterprise sales, and the person looked at me and said, can I tell you something? We love your products, we love the company, Our, those open source stuff is used everywhere inside of this bank, we, you have champions everywhere, we were never going to do a deal with you until you showed up. And I was like, that's weird. It's like, it actually had nothing to do with me, because they then went on to say, because I see who's around the table here, I see you've got a salesperson that has done this before. You've got an SE that's done this before. You've hired a customer support person. You have GGV Capital. You have GGV Capital that's got some money, money behind you. <laughs> and uh, they said it was clear to us that they did not know what it meant to partner with an organization like ours. And I think that's the truth of it, is there's just a credibility gap that you have to bridge to say, okay, you're taking a bet on me, and I recognize you're taking a bet on me. I need to project that I take that responsibility seriously. And there's just a different level of responsibility that comes with it. What about support? How big a deal is support 
the support model and, and yeah. showing showing enterprise customers you, you've got that covered. That was it was it's huge. So we actually, if you think about the profile of the support person we have to hire, it was just a bit different. So when you're interviewing customer support people, customer success people, you end up with basically two slightly different stovepipes that come up on. One is from the sort of the renewals and expansion sales side of customer success. The other one is somebody who's out of the distributed systems background that is a customer support person. And you actually need that person to be able to sit across from this bank and say, I know what it means uh, when your systems go out because I, I've done this before. And that, that, that actually does matter. So we, that was a huge part, being able to project that and then being able to project the follow the sun uh, support that they required. Okay. In keeping with the enterprise theme, you guys do an annual user conference, yep. which you started very early on. Oh, right, the first one I went to, I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> so. and, now, and I was at one before that, <laughs> and it was really small. This is the HashiConfs, which you've now had four, I think. Yep. What value do you get out of those, and do you recommend like annual events for users, and, and what do you try to drive at, at something like an event like that? Yeah, I think, so there are a huge amount of work to put on. I mean, and Nick is living proof of the value of say, doing it. Nick, Nick is the black belt. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Nick from this. Gainsight, if, you, if you're thinking about a user conference, and I, consult with Dave and Nick afterwards. I think it, um, it does a couple things. Number one, for these very practitioner-driven tech, it provides a forum for them to feel like they're not the only ones in the world doing it, because it's scary. I think that's a, that's a big part of it. It, number two, it also allows you to project yourself as much bigger than you are, which is kind of fun. I mean, that one we did in uh, Portland was 300 people, and I think the company was 20 people at the time. And so you project this giant image, and people are like, yeah, this is real, this is real. So it has a real effect on the sentiment that people feel. People get to feel like they're part of something, and they're not the only one. And uh, then over time, it's grown, obviously, to be more of a, you know, Big companies come to it now and go, okay, this is real. Um, I see all the other people here. I think what we've done, I think we've deliberately kept them small. Like a lot of this practitioner-adopted tech, you could have a 10,000-person conference if you, if you open it up and made it free. You probably could. That would be really, really expensive for us. Um, and I'm not sure it would really change anything. So we've almost taken the Apple-esque view of the world, which is let's keep it very intimate. I think our last one was 1,300 people, something like that. So which is obviously big, but not nearly what it could be given how many people use the products. And it's sort of deliberately, it's sort of like, it's like a special club of people that feel like they're having a different experience to go there. And there's a brand value that gets created. It's a really important brand experience for people. But it's a lot of work. Once you commit to doing them, you kind of got to do them. Yeah. So let's shift. There's been a couple questions in the audience that I'm trying to bring together around scale. And you know, when you joined the company, this, is, this was in the zero, almost zero to $10 million phase. If you contrast that zero to 10 to like then the 10 to 25, maybe 10 to 30, the 30 to 100, what changes and what have you guys had to retool about the company? And now, you know, as you're zooming past 100, going beyond that, what's on your mind next? I'm hyper-focused on phase shifts. I work for a CEO who's really, really good at it. And I view my job, in a sense, is to anticipate the phases before they happen. Because the whole company changes when you go from, from 0 to 10 to 10 to 25 to 10 to 25 to 40. Like, the company's completely different. I feel like the 0 to 10 is largely about testing out the market thesis. So what you're doing there is you sort of establish the thesis that says, I think, hey, the world's, in our, in our case, I think the world's going cloud, it's going to be multi-cloud. Therefore, our mission in life is to enable consistency across that experience. 
hmm, that, holds, that seems reasonable. But you gotta test it. And I always feel like these markets we plan are all so big that like, we, yeah, we can get to 10 million in revenue, even if you're selling something that doesn't really work. Like you could, you could muscle your way with enough capital to hire enough salespeople to tell that story. The zero to 10 is about proving this thing out. And so I was doing a lot of the sales myself because I, I, like I said before, I, I feel like your product roadmap is just a derivative of that thesis. It's not the other way around. You don't create a product and then generally trade it to market in the B2B world. It's about, hey, I think this is happening. Let me rally a company around it. So I was spending a lot of my time uh, doing customer engagements because we're trying to elevate ourselves into the information flow. Give a sense for today, I think our sales organization probably meets with about 300 in-person customers per week. Like You just know what's happening in the market at that point, and that's what you're trying to get yourself to. So you're trying to, you're trying to get into that information flow, and one of the best things we did was we had the inside sales team set outside my office, uh, not because they were selling stuff, but just because I got to hear what was happening on every phone call, and like the patterns became pretty clear. So as you go from, from 10 to 25, then it's like, okay, let's sort of formalize that and try to get a bit more consistent, hire a few more salespeople. 25 to like 40, like everything changes because... For example, the product marketing person that was getting the questions from the salespeople and answering them to make that work, there's not enough hours in the day anymore. So what that you have to do is basically force everybody at like that $25 million breakpoint to step back and recognize their job has changed. You cannot keep doing things the way you were doing them. You now have to think more systematically. So if you're the product marketing person, now create content that gets consumed as opposed to being the person in the flow. So, so like, it's actually more about just having people internalize that their job changes Drastically, number twenty-five. Great but point. zero to ten is about the thesis. Great point. Let's uh, let's go to to some lightning round questions. You're in the hot seat, okay? It's really hot. <laughs> I can tell. Uh, what's your favorite book for, that you recommend for founders and execs? I actually really like the hard thing about hard things. I think I think there's some Great truths one. in there. I also really like Play Bigger. If you guys have read, if anybody's read that. I think the concept in Play Bigger, which is the digital's taken over and you have to own the category, is one of the most profound things that's happening to all of us in the world of B2B software. And if you're not owning your category, uh, it's going to be hard. Okay. If you were an investor or board member in a series A or B company, what's the one piece of advice you'd, you'd give to the founder? Yeah, it's probably what I just said. It's like positioning's everything. And I, I stop, I'm actually an accountant, not a marketing person, is the truth. <laughs> I wasn't a very good accountant. But, but, uh, so I don't say that as a marketing person. I say that as just having observed scale. I think, I think we can get companies to 10 or $20 million in ARR on the back of a hard push. Uh, it's really hard to get beyond that if you don't have a market thesis that holds water and wrapping a company behind it. So I think positioning is everything. Okay. What's uh, a company that you admire and why? Maybe this is a default, but I, I'm a huge fan of Microsoft. I think, uh, I think what they're doing is incredible. I think Microsoft's like, a, I'm a, I tend to think of the world in spreadsheets, so they appeal to me because I feel like Microsoft is a, it's like the McKinsey project running out. Like they map out, hey, over the next 10 years, we're going to become a cloud company, and it'll take 10 years. And they'll be like, they've done the math of how it's going to happen over 10 years. And I just think that ability to be a trusted partner over really, really long periods of time and having the kind of the stick at itness to make those transitions is a hard thing to do. I think they've done a great job. Well, Dave, I hope that GGV is a trusted partner of HashiCorp for a it very is. long time. I, I know that uh, Jeff's smiling. He, th he hopes so as well. We have uh, nothing but admiration for the job you've done uh, building HashiCorp to this point. And uh, everybody in this room is looking forward to uh, seeing what happens next for your company. And um, 
I hope everybody would join me in, in thanking Dave for sharing some wisdom on, on how he's grown HashiCorp. Cool. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>